end, aren't we? So this session really is a much a restatement of some of the things I've said, plus trying to pull bits of it together. Um, I would feel sorry for you, because having bombarded you with all this stuff, I just wonder how you cope with it all. Has <laughs> it just kind of gone to mush in the head, or does it <laughs> make some sense in some way? <laughs> mush, okay. <laughs> well, let's see if we can create something out of the mush, then. <laughs> One of the things I really want to start off by saying is really just a very practical thing because dependent origination, Empson's teachings, the teaching of not-self, as you've heard me say again and again, and I gather Rob's been doing the same with you as well, are all practical teachings. They're all practical elements of the Buddha's teaching. Despite the way they get into these rarefied you know, kind of philosophical ideas, the whole point about them was that they affected your life. And I think I might have given you that quote um, from Tsongkhapa, which actually, as I said, I was sitting in the monastery one day in India, pouring through this text by Tsongkhapa, which is horrendously difficult. Um, I sort of spent days and days reading this thing and trying to understand what was going on there. And I finally finished it, and it had a colophon at the end, which is actually just a kind of thing that he wrote to, to say a little bit about his composition, where it was composed, and you know, to basically give you encouragement. He said, if having read this text, the hairs on the back of your neck don't stand up, then you haven't understood it. <laughs> and so, in a way, much of this stuff, and I hadn't understood it, because that didn't happen to me at all, um, much of this stuff really is meant to give you an emotional kick. You know, it really is meant to get to you, to shake your life up. Nothing about it should be cosy, and I hope I've brought that out. It's really to liberate you from the sort of stuckness that we can often feel, that intractability that it almost feels to be to life, and to the repetitive patterns that we often feel within life, the way things keep coming around again and again, and we know the tone of that mostly, you know, because most of it is pretty unpleasant. You know, when you feel that you really are doing the same things you were many, many, many years ago. And I just want to read you a little extract from Rilke, <clears throat> which I think actually really sums up this feeling of stuckness. And it's actually from his prose um, work. Um, which I'll give you the details if you want at the end of it. It's a little bit called Fears. Have I sound familiar? Fear? Ever co crop up in your life at all? <laughs> and Rilke's kind of describing this character, he says, and he's taking on the persona of me, he said, I'm lying in my bed five flights up, and my day, which nothing interrupts, is like a clock face without hands. As something that has been lost for a long time reappears one morning in its old place, safe and sound, almost newer than when it vanished, just as if someone had been taking care of it. So here and there on my blanket, lost feelings out of my childhood lie, and I like new. All the lost fears are here again. The fear that a small woolen thread sticking out of the hem of my blanket may be hard, hard and as sharp as a steel needle. The fear that this little button on my nightshirt may be bigger than my head, bigger and heavier. The fear that the breadcrumb which just dropped off my bed may turn into glass and shatter when it hits the floor. 
and the sickening worry that when it does, everything will be broken. Forever. The fear that the ragged edge of a letter which was torn open may be something forbidden, which no one ought to see, something indescribably precious, for which no place in the room is safe enough. The fear that if I fell asleep, I might swallow the piece of coal lying in front of the stove. The fear that some number may begin to grow in my brain until there is no more room for it inside me. The fear that I might be lying on granite, on grey granite. The fear that I might start screaming and people will come running to my door and finally force it open. The fear that I might betray myself and tell everything I dread and the fear that I might not be able to say anything because everything is unsayable. And the other fears and the other fears and the fears and the fears. I prayed to discover my childhood and it's come back. And I feel it's just as difficult as it used to be. And that growing older has served absolutely no purpose at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think that describes beautifully the feeling of stuckness. (laughs) that we can often feel, and almost the claustrophobia to it as well. Now, one of the things I was trying to explore with you, I'm sure Rob has been, is this sense of spaciousness that comes about when we begin to see, for example, that the fears themselves, say, take Rilke's example, the fears themselves are merely conditioned, they arise and they pass away, and they have no substantiality whatsoever. However, the emotional hold of things like fear and anxiety and all of the myriads of emotions that we run through in the gamut of a day, let alone in the course of a lifetime, feel incredibly powerful, incredibly, as I say, intractable. However, the teaching of emptiness can allay some of that, can start to tease apart this immense feeling of something woven into the fabric of our being that we can't seemingly get rid of. There's an interesting, rather beautiful um, start to one of the suttas where the Buddha says, who's going to untangle the tangle? This matted ball, which is basically tied up, matted and coarse, he said, Who's going to untangle the tangle? Well, of course, nobody else other than you. That's only you can untangle the tangle. And I think, again, the image of the tangled ball really does present a very, very striking image, often to the the knottedness that we can often feel in day-to-day life. Again, as I say, I'm not really telling you anything new, perhaps just putting it in a slightly different way. But one of the things I have tried to emphasise to you is that the teaching of Pratitya Samapada, or Pratitya Samapada, depending on whether you like Pali or Sanskrit, dependent origination. Um, I play with this translation sometimes and try to come up with something actually which is much more effective. And even toyed once with calling it situational patterning because this is how every situation that we arrive in moment to moment is patterned. It's not an accurate technical translation, but it brings out the feel for what's going on in our normal situations. This situational patterning, this dependent origination, 
I can't underemphasize enough that this is the most important teaching in the whole of any of the Buddhist traditions. It's the unique contribution that the Buddha, in many ways, makes to thinking about the human condition, of really trying to loosen us up in, in the sense of this knottedness which I've referred to. So it's this unique contribution, and the teaching as well <clears throat> of not-self arises directly out of that. You know, I know we did them slightly about face, because I think the teaching of not-self is a little easier to grasp sometimes than the teaching of dependent origination. But actually, the one arises out of the other. And the whole history of just even the brief things we looked at, such as Nagarjuna and Asanga, Vasubandhu and all these major figures, Chandrakirti, all of them really are doing nothing other than producing a series of footnotes to this teaching. That's all they're doing. They're trying to find ways of comprehending it, of putting it across, restating the middle again, trying to put a, you know, the practitioner back on track. Unfortunately, of course, it gets carried off into this kind of major scholastic enterprise, and then I think it loses its vitality when it does so. It loses its directness, its ability to speak to you. And that's what it really ought to be doing. If you delve into any of these books, some of them are more technical than others, but it really they, the teachings out of them really should speak to you. Uh, if they're not, keep pursuing them. Take them slowly. The teachings themselves are not meant to be understood at a gulp, you know, as if we can suddenly digest them. It takes a lot of exposure. Um, in many ways, um, and I put myself amongst this, we're perpetual beginners. Yeah. We should be coming back and looking at the basic teachings again and again and again and again. There is this temptation, I think, in the Western world to want to go off and do the esoteric, the special, the highest teaching. There is no higher teaching. This is it. You know, you've got the four ennobling truths, the eightfold path, <coughs> Patija Samuppada, dependent origination, not self. Where else is there to go other than to those teachings and keep re-examining them and re-examining in the light of your own life? Nothing else. This is not, as I say technical information really which is meant to be digested and then regurgitated for say an exam this is about your life this is your laboratory isn't it this is where you experiment with these things this is where you get to see them or not see them operating yeah. so it's not a belief system I mean let's make this very very clear this is not a belief system um, as I almost joked about it last week you know, we don't believe in dukkha, we either have it or we don't. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Buddhist because I believe in dukkha. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's either occurring in your life or not. You know, and it's really there to examine in which forms it takes. You know, what form does it take for you? you know, in many ways, as we know, that, that that dukkha, which all of these teachings, including this teaching on emptiness and the practice and attempt to realise this emptiness is meant to alleviate. You know, that is your problem. I mean, that's basically what the Buddha comes along. He says, hey, you've got a problem. 
do you want to do about something about it or not? And if you do want to do something about it, here's some ways of trying to get into it. Now that dukkha, if we do realise it, really forms the warp and woof of our life. You know, it's kind of woven into the tapestry of everyday things. Just those little you know, instances of dissatisfaction when you want things to be otherwise. You know, I often think that for most of us, you know, this is why I find the translation suffering such an overstatement, that actually, until we get the tragedies happening in our life, the old age, the sickness and the death, either to ourselves or to those who are close to us, those we care about, most of what goes really under the name of dukkha is fairly minor. It forms, as I say, that everyday background, that part of that tapestry of our ordinary life, and probably has much more of the character, I don't know, of something like not getting the chocolate out of the box because somebody else has eaten it, <laughs> you know, that you really wanted. You know, getting the thing you wanted, but not having it the right colour. <laughs> you know, these are the minor things. Living that day-to-day impermanence. Living that little losses from moment to moment to moment. Rilke has a lovely phrase for that. Actually, he's one of the greatest poets we're quoting from. He has, you know, we live in this world forever taking leave. (laughs) Forever taking leave. That's our situation, isn't it? Taking leave, you know, things are leaving us continuously. Almost saying goodbye to them. We live in this world forever saying goodbye to things. Day to day, that is an experience. This day will go. It will transmute into another day. And it will be gone. This moment will be gone, never to be replaced again. That was part of the challenge that I spoke to you about, both at the beginning and at the end of last week, right at the beginning of the retreat and at the end of last week. That was the challenge. That's to continue, to continue with equanimity, to continue with, dare I say it, joy, in the face of that contingency, in the face of that radical taking leave that we all have to experience both day to day, moment to moment, second to second. That's what we're doing. The teaching itself of emptiness, be it in its kind of Mahayana formulation with all its technicalities, all its scholasticism around it, is nothing other really than the teaching that the Buddha gives us at that very earliest phase, which you'll find you know, in some of the suttas and the reading list I've given you. It's part of that early teaching where the Buddha is saying there is nothing, absolutely nothing, in this world which isn't based on causes and conditions. That is the basis for the contingency that we live. Because the moment those conditions change, The light changes. Our mood changes. In a sense, we operate 
and live in slightly different worlds. You know, the moment these things change. That is what the challenge, again, is to live in our day-to-day life. Now, we can live it by trying to evade it, and that's the big problem. Um, the big problem can be when we try to evade it in day-to-day life. What happens? We can kind of circumvent our existence. We can restrict it, constrict it, in order to try and gain some illusory control over it. As I often say, it retreats here, got a house in you know, different retreats to this, but my kind of normal retreats that I teach. There's a wonderful phrase that I came across, uh, which I wished I'd coined. I really do wish I'd coined it. I'd have copyrighted it, I think. Yeah. And it said, relax, nothing is under control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's such a profound statement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we don't relax, do we? We get upset, disturbed. We have anxiety. Because of it. Because we lack the control, the degree of certainty that we would like over life's vicissitudes, over its endless rising and falling. We lack that control. We can illusorily create it by circumscribing your existence, trying to gain control over the things that you think you can gain control over. And that varies for each individual. One of the frightening things that can be perceived, I think, uh, as a generalisation, and be aware, of course, much of this is generalisation, so you have to think it through in the individual cases, is that as people get older, often their lives become more and more constricted. There's less and less that they can do. Now, much of that, of course, is generated by things like the media and everything else, but it's not just that. It's this attempt to retain control and to really deal with the fear of the unknown and the changing world. Now, of course, what happens with that, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, is if you try to control your existence, try to, in some ways, control fear, and I really mean control it rather than deal with it, then what you're doing is effectively building something like, and this is an image for you, something like a house with no foundations and on shifting sand. And it might stay out for a little while. And then it's all the walls are going to fall flat at some point. When life obtrudes, it bursts through, it ruptures whatever cosiness um, we attempt to find. And that, of course, is self-created. So the message really from that is, well, isn't it better to deal with it as it arises? rather than attempt to control and make life very, very tight. Emptiness again, spaciousness. And I actually think of the image I've just given you, of restriction. Spaciousness and living that spaciousness by realising, in a sense, the spaciousness of life 
itself, rather than this evanescent world with its rising and falling necessarily being frightening, it can also be releasing. What I have a sort of image is once you get away from the constriction, you've now got a big area to play in. <laughs> you can go out to play. And I mean that in a sense seriously as well. That there is an area where you can live life fully. Where it can be really, really meaningful. Not in the sense of one overall meaning, but in the fact that we create meaning as we go along. Or basically condense it in our attempt to kind of control it. And therefore only a very few things become meaningful in our lives. And if you can't do those things for whatever reason, then life is somehow meaningless. So it's the meaning that we take in those little things in life. In the minutiae of daily experience. Now, that liberation is the liberation from the dominance of the concept about how I think life should be. We live in subservience often to images, thoughts, concepts about how life should be. For example, many people still live under the illusion that life should somehow be fair. (laughs) Where was it written into the contract (laughs) that life should somehow be fair? It wasn't, was it? There was no contract, even. (laughs) But fairness is going to be there, or whatever it is, or good, or beautiful, or joyful. It's going to be a mixture of all sorts of things. It's being, and again, this is another metaphor for emptiness in its really practical form, it's being open to what arises. Being that spaciousness which allows what is to be. Now again, we often don't allow what is to be because we're trying to mess with it. We're trying to control it or eradicate it. Get rid of it. Cling on to it. Invest it with some kind of degree of substance it doesn't have. These are all strategies, and I'm sure you can think of many, many more than the ones I've just mentioned. But the strategies we have whereby we attempt to control life. It's not just that individuals are control freaks. I think we all are. We're all attempting to control. This is saying... Open and let be. And that you will find there is a degree of meaningfulness in our daily activity which is simply not seen when we have this almost like tunnel vision. That's a constriction, isn't it? When we have this constriction, when we're guided by images and concepts and thoughts about the way life be, it's like, focus in. And all you see is what's at the end of the tunnel. This is the widening of vision, the opening of vision. 
opening ourselves up to a wider way of understanding the world and being in that world. Whereby we're not in subservience to these images held captive by them that we have. Now, that's a big task, isn't it? Because one of the things that you know, we talked about was actually what we're full of. We're leaking out, out in this incontinent way all over the world <laughs> is opinions about the way it is. Now, I pretty well think all of the major traditions, and I know some of you have thought I've sounded critical about them, but I think all of the major traditions, all of them, pretty well, those that have emptiness at their core practice are trying to get us to see that. Be it from those early school, you know, early schools which have disappeared, which really we only have in the records of the Nikayas, to the Theravada, to the Tibetan traditions, all in their own ways are trying to get us to find this opening of vision. Yeah. An opening of vision which, in some senses, isn't attached to notions like identity and all of the identity that's created, that we can create for ourselves, which has at its core dukkha. I know I'm the same person that I am because I'm in pain. Well, actually, a lot of the time we're creating that pain. So it's how to get out of this, to move away into this much, much more unrestricted open vision that all of these teachings, the core teachings of these major traditions really are geared and aimed at. Understanding awareness as process. In fact, really understanding the world and our life as process. If we live in a world of things, I'm just one thing among all of you who are other things. (laughs) I mean... What a terrible vision that is, if that's true. Well, if I'm a thing and you're a thing, well, this thing is going to manipulate that thing (laughs) and try and get what it wants in terms of gratification out of it. So actually, you know, that subject-object relationship that we've talked about, we talked a little bit about it in some of the question and answers, non-dualism, actually subject and objects, which is dualism, is basically about manipulation, unethical behaviour. This is the subject, you're the object, and I can manipulate you what way I want to get you know, what I want from you. Now, I haven't spoken so much about it this time, but there's this enormous ethical dimension to shunyata, to emptiness. The very term itself is like bursting a bubble, shunyata. Shunya, empty, means literally comes from a verb in Sanskrit, which means to swell. And they have this image of something being swollen on the outside. It has this great presence. Everything we view, including ourselves, swollen with our own egos. That's a phrase that's often used. We're swollen with that selfhood, that ego. Actually, but if you stick a pin in it, it's got no substance whatsoever. (laughs) I often think of um, Eliot's poem, The Hollow Men, do you know? Yeah. We are the hollow men, heads stuffed with straw. <laughs> yeah, that's the sort of image that comes up for me when I hear this notion. that There is this all this 
frippery on the outside with no substance. <laughs> no substance whatsoever. Yeah, and this is not just others, this is ourselves. This is what we do to ourselves. We try to turn ourselves into something. In fact, probably one of the greatest existential anxieties that most people have is in being nothing. <laughs> Which is actually their true condition. One of the great um, aspects of Sartre's thought, Jean-Paul Sartre, is his idea that, of course, consciousness is nothing. If you want to talk about consciousness. Yeah, and people are terrified by the freedom of that. So they try to turn themselves into tables and chairs, which appear to be far more substantial. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just think about that. That's actually what we're trying to do most of our life. Giving ourselves an identity is trying to be a table or a chair. <laughs> you know, in other words, something which appears to be relatively unchanging. Yeah. Now, I think that's a very, very good diagnosis of a lot of what goes on in our ordinary life when we seek for these identities. We clutch after, as particularly, I think, a lot of New Ageism does, after the idea of a real self. Of a real self. I came across once, and actually, in fact, I sent it to a friend of mine who's called Stanley. This card was of uh, this man. It was a beautiful card too. It says, Stanley went to the Himalayas to try and find his real self. And there's a picture of this guy slogging up a mountain with a rucksack on, and that, where another guy who looks exactly like him is standing at the top with a briefcase and a pinstripe suit. <laughs> <laughs> Searching for your real self? <laughs> you know, so, again, that's another illusion that we can often get gulled into, trying to find our real selves. It bespeaks, again, of trying to find something substantial, unchanging, having identity. Now, why am I telling you all this again? Because I'm, I'm telling you what I've pretty well said over you know, the three weeks I've been speaking to you but hopefully putting it in a slightly more practical way, is because this is the stuff you have to examine day to day in your own existence. Those little times when you find yourself searching for a sense of real identity. I mean, real in scare quotes. Identity. Yeah. I am this sort of person. Just think that sort of phrase that you use. You know, I am this sort of person. You ever said that? <laughs> <laughs> And that doesn't mean I'm this, this kind of person today. This is, I'm this kind of person forever. <laughs> you know, we don't say these things lightly. Um, and not only do I know what kind of person I am, I know what kind of person you are too. <laughs> You're that kind of person, aren't you? you know, so we're doing, we're objectifying both ourselves and others. Turning ourselves into something substantial. Turning the other into something substantial. With all of the... Often, not always, but you know, often the unethical behaviour that goes with that kind of view when we try to you know, turn the world into something controllable. If you want an image, really what you've got is an image here of a great fat spider sitting in the middle of the web pulling all the strings. 
That's what the self is. <laughs> it's attempting to sit in the middle of the web and control all the springs. And lo and behold, or lo and you know, lo betide you if you happen to step onto one of the strings because you're getting trapped mm. by it too. The self is trying to control in that way you know, if we give it substantiality. So this is a questioning relationship that you're coming into. It's actually an investigation. Let's put no too fine a point on it. It's an investigation. It's an investigation to actually become aware, as that you know, teacher who I refer to right back at the beginning, Ming Rinpoche, once said to me, you know, that uh, it's like searching for your lost wallet or purse. <laughs> Until you find out you lost it. You keep on doing it. Till you actually begin to see the world itself and your, yourself within that world, because you're not separate from it, <clears throat> as actually something far more exciting and something far more dynamic and colourful than we would ever give credence to, generally, with this rather myopic view that we are fastened to about who... I mean, the world seems perfectly understandable, doesn't it? You know, we think we understand it. We think we know it, you know. Hence the reason why, again, I was saying to you, often time passes a lot quicker because there's nothing new. I already know it all. Oh, I've seen that blue sky before. <laughs> I've seen the sunlight coming through the window. It's just old sunlight, isn't it? No. <laughs> so, no, no, we don't see the blue sky very often. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, you get let out. So. <laughs> but again, I'm sending it up to make a point that the world, from this standpoint of the self and self-identity and everything that goes with it, seems boringly obvious. But it isn't it actually is wonderfully exhilarating and exciting. You know, even when you don't see the blue sky, and it's the greyness. You've never seen it before. You know, not in exactly that way. Because every experience comes, as I've said, with all of that previous perceptual experience. So actually what we're perceiving is the past. Just like Rilke is perceiving the fears. They haven't gone away, they haven't changed, and really haven't learned anything at all. So really, I'm going to kind of draw this to a close and then see what kind of issues arise out of this and because this is the task that every one of us has. And it can be so easy to keep on falling and falling and falling back into the patterns that we know because they are so well occupied. They're so well known. So when you go out of here, and we'll say more about this this evening, yeah, it will be difficult to sustain even some of the insights you may have had you know, because you get pulled back and fall into the habit patterns.
because they're well known. Yeah, better the better the pain I know than the one I don't. Yeah, so you fall back into it. But when we do so, we keep, of course, this constricted view of reality. We don't open up into this open field of being. We remain lodged, stuck, intractable. All the places where I started this talk from. And the reason why it has to be an ongoing, day-to-day, you know, whenever you can remind yourself process, is because you're going to keep finding yourself falling into those positions. You know, we all do. It's not that we're bad people. None of us are. It's just that we have a method for coping with life which in a way has outlived its stay. But we keep on using it. Not quite disbelieving that it isn't going to show benefit. Even things like you know, the pain of anxiety, the pain of fears. Why do we keep on doing them again and again and again and again? Because somehow we think there's going to be some furtherance of our aim, and I'm not talking cognitively here, by the application. If I worry about something, it must sort itself out. No, it doesn't. (laughs) You just get into spirals of worry and anxiety and fear and all the things that happen. So emptiness becomes an antidote in all ways that we've been speaking about it. To that, picking it up, seeing the thought as being impermanent, not I, not me, not mine. Whatever method you've been using to continue that investigation, wherein is the beauty, the ugliness, the whatever it might be, to the object which I desire or want to avoid? These are the sort of questions... And they're not academic questions. They really are not. Because, just to finish this off, how are we going to empty out this ignorance, which is deeply, deeply tight in our psyches, and the formations, using the technical terms, which I've been calling habits, which have been formed out of them, which lead to the craving and lead to the grasping. Well, only by having something which will literally prize our fingers off. Mm. Prize the fingers off whatever we're holding on to. That tool in these traditions is emptiness, ultimately. That's the way of diminishing grasping, cutting through craving, ultimately eliminating the formations and then ignorance and the asavas which are part of the ignorance itself. Now, there is another side to the story which we haven't had time to explore, which is, and hopefully you've been doing this in your practice, the softening side of it. The practice of compassion, the feeling of kindness, both towards yourself and towards others. 
it. So it doesn't become this hard, cold, intellectual, you know, applying the scalpel to yourself and to your, you know, to your perceptions and to your thoughts. You know, that it is softened, tempered by compassion. There finishes the lesson. <laughs> so I kind of open it up really for responses and comments and anything else. Anybody who wants to say anything? Can you say something about so using emptiness as an antidote um, about the other methods, like rather than as an antidote, where you can use purification, <coughs> transformation. I, I, in a way, when I say an antidote, I, and I think it implies all those things, right. purification and transformation. I think one of the big kind of historical debates in Buddhism has been about you know, paths of transformation or paths of realisation. Mm. I think all of these paths are paths of transformation. Right. All of them work on purifying mm. the individual. I mean, the fact that Buddha Ghost's big work is called the path of purification. Mm. Yeah. Um, even Longchenpa was in the Nyingma Dzogchen tradition, is the trilogy of finding comfort and ease, and the whole story is one of purification. Mm. Yeah, but at the heart of that mm. is the purifying of view. Mm. That's what the heart of I think, again, and if I was making a generalisation of all these traditions, purifying of view. What do you mean by purifying? To purify, to get clear, to take out the obstructions yeah. of view. To see the truth. That's right. So st- instead of like, use an analogy that Buddha Gosa does, you know, he said what we've got, what we're confronted is, with is a bowl of water which is muddy and it's all stirred up. Purification of view is when you see the clear water, just the clear water itself. So I think you know when I say an antidote, really I imply all those things as well. Um, because they're all, they're all, you know, they're all there. They're all there in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And I really do feel that for all of the traditions. Mm. Yeah. Some work very differently. I mean, let's say, I mean, I've spoken about ones that have emptiness primarily as at the core of its practice. Take something like Shin Buddhism. Yeah, Shin Buddhism has a wonderful practice. Practice of gratitude. Mm. Yeah. Wonderful practice. Um, it says, you know, basically you can be in this world complaining about what we haven't got. Be grateful for what you have. Yeah. And so their practice is by constantly paying gratitude. Is it no, that's, no. that's no, 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 no. That's, that's Vietnamese Zen, a form of Vietnamese Zen. But Shin, Shin Buddhism is a particular form of Japanese Pure Land Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, that is aiming at purification. Purification of ingratitude. <coughs> because actually, if you think about it, and I think this is a very powerful practice, there's a, a lot of grudgingness about being here. Yeah. Yeah, so that becomes another transformation, purification, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. Um, the, I'm still allowing comfort curious about the whole take on comfort, the teachings on emptiness are there in the early um, teachings of the Buddha and yet if I understand correctly that there are a lot of practitioners 
realise the emptiness of persons but not the emptiness of phenomena? That's because the primary emphasis is on the doctrine of anatta, on not-self, not of all other phenomena as well. It's implicit in it. It's not explicit. What, what the Mahayana tends to do, even with its use of a term like shunyata, is it's making much more explicit or overt what is either there covertly or implied in the early teachings. I think that's really what happens. That's why I said, if we take Nagarjuna as being the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, as many do, really, Mahayana as a movement, then, Mahay- then basically Nagarjuna sees himself nothing, as doing nothing other than restating the Buddha's message. Mm. That's all. But because the times, in a sense, have declined from the Buddha's own period, from his own lifetime, then it's got to be done really kind of up front. Mm. <laughs> so what about the, like the, the idea of the three turnings of the wheel? Well, that's a very is Mahayanist it, idea. Uh, <laughs> so it, that comes much later. That comes you, much you later. don't actually find that in the early... No, canon. you don't find that at all. There is the teaching. That is yeah. all. Mm-hmm. That is all. John, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you say um, a bit about uh, this, you know, trying to be someone or, or being afraid of being nothing, no one? Mm. Mm. Where, where does it come from, really? You said you just mentioned Sartre saying about fear of freedom. But mm. Can you kind of? Again, it's one of those questions, and in, in a sense, we don't have to answer. Yeah. In that we have it. It might come, as Sartre says, you know, from the fear of you know, the freedom of consciousness. Who knows? I mean, that's a good piece of speculation, as far as I'm concerned. But it's there. We know we've got it. We've got this desire to become something much, much more substantial in this life. And, as such, to look at its destructive aspects and open by letting go. That's That's the difficult bit. But first of all, it's seeing, in a sense, how insinuated it is into our ordinary activities. I came up, the um, German Buddhist nun, had a wonderful first book, actually. It's called Being Nobody Going Nowhere. It's <laughs> a lovely title. I think some people don't have a strong enough sense of who they are, and that can be a really important journey. Mm. I think that can be true. Yeah, they I don't think. have a sense of who they are in the world, and, and that can cause a lot of suffering. Yeah, it can be. So I think there's a balance. It's the middle way. Yeah. Again, it's the middle way. I think that isn't probably the experience for the majority of people. It's, in a sense, uh, kind of overwritten in our ordinary life because uh, I think culturally there's a huge part of fear that's generated of being nobody, of not having made a mark in some way in this world. And again, I mean, I think you just look at it and see whether that's true in life. But I do agree with you. I think there are some people who, for example, the teaching of no self is positively dangerous to say to 
in particular if they've got a very fragmented sense of self anyway. Because, and this is why it's the middle way, whether we're talking about identity or self or whatever it is, is the Buddha is not saying there is something substantial and he's not saying there is nothing. What he's saying is there is a process and there's a balanced way of being that process. In a sense, the fragmented person probably goes more towards the nihilistic side of not being anything at all or having no sense. Whereas the, the egotist goes much more towards I'm something. Yeah. Actually, in Buddhist iconography, this is the devil around. Everybody thinks they're something. <laughs> yeah, they're all up there in this kind of realm of the gods. So it's like getting that balance right, being this ba- living this balanced process. I know, I know. Oh, no, I'm thinking of something else now. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's quite difficult, really, sometimes, you know, to get a, a sense of fulfilment in one's life. You know, sometimes with emptiness, there's a danger of being passive and different aspects somehow. Mm. Well, all I can say about that is that shouldn't be part of it. It's to do what can be done, but not fret about that which can't be done. And that, again, needs this eye of insight bringing to your ordinary activities. One, one thing I think I'm personally very um, advocate very strongly, and it's not something that's been there traditionally, is social action. There's an awful lot of things that need changing in our world, and people can do something about them. We're not simply powerless, and this teaching is not about quietism of all just sitting there and going, oh, yes, in equanimity, I'll let it all go. (laughs) It's not that, is it? It's it's actually knowing what needs to be done and knowing sometimes that there's stuff outside of what you individually can do. That's where you're putting this eye of, and I mean the eye here, the kind of visual eye, to bear on looking closely at what you can do. So, in a way, I mean, I agree with um, Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, all bit of Buddhism is engaged Buddhism. It really should be engaged with not, not just yourself and the problems of yourself, but the problems of community. John, I have a question in line with that. Um, Years ago, I heard the Dalai Lama in a public talk um, say if he had to do it all over again in Tibet, he would have less people in the monasteries. Mm. Is yeah. that what? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, th- I mean, the monasteries in Tibet, I mean, just a kind of big, brief thing about it. The monasteries in Tibet are dumping grounds for surplus kids. That's what the monasteries in Tibet were, I mean, a lot of the time. I'm not saying I mean, there, there are those, and I knew, knew a lot of them. You know, there were there, a lot of monks in there. Um, who really wanted to be there, but that wasn't the majority. Um, the majority were there because they were literally like the surface male population, yeah. um, which is why they were so huge. Yeah. And so I can quite understand them saying, "Yeah, in a in a chained in a in a in a different world, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have monasteries. You'd have people there who wanted to be there, who really wanted to pursue that way of life." <laughs> there was one. There was one Rinpoche who was a, a, a so-called Tibetan reincarnate Lama who was acting as a school teacher when I first met him. He was from Drepung Monastery originally, and um, 
he'd been placed in the monastery because he was very young because he was recognised as reincarnate Lama. And I said, because he finally disrobed and left and became the school teacher. And I said to him, and when did you, and I said very piously, and when did you know the monastic life was wrong for you? He said, but about two seconds of being ordained. <laughs> <laughs> He ended up spending 25 years there. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know... I see, I was wondering, because, you know, I sort of pondered that later and was trying to think, well, what did he... You know, what could he have meant by that? Yeah, because the the monasteries in Tibet were huge, particularly the Galukra tradition, because you've got to remember these were enormous institutions, absolutely enormous, and they're getting that way again in in South India now. I actually took it to be different, Mm. and of course not knowing nothing about it, but what I put in was what you were saying, but something in your question was um, taking all the best minds and putting them in the monastery rather than having... Than in the government, or no? No, I don't think so. I think he's, he's really, impl- really, he's really looking at the that. cultural situation in Tibet, where there's a huge amount of monks who really shouldn't be in those monasteries at all. Yes. Really shouldn't yeah. be, because they, they don't fulf- they, they don't actually have fulfilled lives themselves. You know, they're really putting. I mean, a lot of them stay there simply because they get fed. Mm-hmm. That's why they stay there. Um, you get the rudiments of an education, of reading and writing. You know, classical Tibetan. But apart from that, it's a pretty unfulfilled... I used to know so many monks in the monasteries who were living pretty unfulfilled lives. Yeah, be- I mean, now they're sort of pushed into it, you know, through being refugees. Yeah, that's um, right. it's and that's a different situation because you have the diaspora situation now mm-hmm. where they're having to go into it for different reasons. And actually a lot do now, which they wouldn't have done so much in Tibet, disrobe mm-hmm. you know, be- before taking full mm-hmm. vows. Taking the full gallon baths. Wasn't the situation, Janos, um, that that um, you can't go on dividing land up amongst your male children because it won't support? That was mainly more on the no. mountainous regions. Um, that's why you had polygamy as well as polyandry being yeah. practiced in some of those mm-hmm. areas. But that wasn't true of the majority of Tibet. Where, you know, yeah, if you look at Tibetan. Um, landscape it's incredibly wide you know when you talk about valley you, you know some of the valleys are the size of small counties mm. in Tibet itself again I mean Tibet and I knew he was living in Switzerland and I said to him naively because his eyes very young I said to him you know living in Switzerland you must like that because it's a bit like being Tibet he said no it's claustrophobic <laughs> <laughs> there's all these mountains <laughs> <laughs> Because there used to be huge valleys with mountains in the distance. Yeah. A very different situation. Anyway, no. Well, uh, I was uh, sort of interested with the relationship between uh, emptiness and compassion. Mm-hmm. And sort of uh, the idea of saying, you know, emptiness is cold, so you have to warm it up with compassion. Well, it's practically maybe fine, but not very elegant. Uh, logically kind of thing. So I was more thinking perhaps emptiness is only one of the three characteristics and it should be kept together as, you know, one doctrine. And emptiness in a way is the keystone of the whole thing because when you understand emptiness, you really got the whole part. 
Well, ultimately, of course, what you're going to discover is the inseparability. Yeah. yeah. Of the so two. then, by the time you really get the emptiness, you also have that sense of uh, uh, interrelationship mm. and suffering, and out of these two comes the compassion. I think it's it's there. I mean, let me just say a little bit about that. I think you're absolutely right. What actually happens in realization, or you realize that you're not doing one thing called compassion and one thing called emptiness. You're actually doing one thing, which is this inseparability. Yeah, because my experience was always that whenever, I mean, the little bit of letting go, the little bit of experiencing a little sense of emptiness, Mm. always sort of was filled in mm. with the compassion. I didn't have to sum it up like, oh, now do your meta or something like this. It, it sort of went together. Yes, but that's not always everybody's experience of it. And I, you know, having seen this over the years, a lot of people's <laughs> experiences is almost keeping them separate, mm-hmm. keeping the two separate. Um, so that, in a way, if that is the case, and you're engaged in doing emptiness practices, and remember that emptiness practices, and we've done them in a certain way, but in certain traditions, it can get extremely heady. Mm. It can get very, very kind of the mind analysing, dissecting, chopping away at things. Um, and that sense of its rootedness in compassion or its inseparability, as we're referring to, gets lost. So you have to evoke it almost manually <laughs> yeah. to keep it going, to keep it grounded, to stop it flying off into this rather heady, almost intellectual way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the reason why you're doing it. It's just kind of reminding yourself to keep it grounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because emptiness practices, as I say, by their, almost by their very nature in certain traditions end up being in this rather intellectual phase. It's using the mind, using the mind in a particular way. Whereas compassion, you can't really be intellectual about it. You've got to be grounded with it. Yeah. It's a very practical, hands-on stuff. Yeah, that's the reason why. Bridget, and then just a... I'm just thinking about the taking understanding into uh, everyday life and what's been coming up for me quite strongly on this retreat is actually taking some of this understanding into family relationships, so kind of old, quite delineated mm. relationships, mm. and just getting a sense of how polarising those relationships can be. Mm. And we get into kind of roles and particular identities vis-a-vis mm. each other, mm. and just sort of having the kind of sense of possibility that even if the other person is hanging on like that mm. to their role mm. and identity and indeed to you staying in their perception of you mm. if one party can begin to release mm. that then the other party mm. has that space yes and actually might not soften themselves mm. yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean what ha- often happens is a solidifying in family relationships isn't it yeah becomes much more solid and I think this practice when you take it out into ordinary life becomes like softening it, starting to soften it a little bit, starting not always to play the role, getting the other person sometimes reflecting on their role and the way they see themselves 
and how actually real, I often use this as a phrase, how real relationship is the negotiation of change together. But when you get these solid senses of who you are within the relationship, be it family or individual, one-to-one relationships or whatever, there isn't that feeling of what I call spaciousness there. There isn't that feeling of, of that possibility of loosening, being something other, being just being more playful and joyful often. Uh, we are, we don't see that because you know I think the word you use wonderful is roles. We take on roles and we take them seriously. Yeah. I once had a wonderful description given to me when I was in South Africa. I did I fell into this terrible trap that often people do of asking somebody what they did, almost as a way of trying to find out who they were. Um, but this person came back with this most wonderful remark. I said to him, yeah, "And what do you do?" And he said, "He said I play at being professor of linguistics." <laughs> And I thought that was a really good response, you know, because actually it's serious, the role, of course it is. But in a way you're playing it. We don't see the play, do we, within our roles? Because we take them terribly seriously, like we take ourselves terribly seriously. And I think you're right, I think that can help to start to untangle a bit of that, bring it into order in life. And a deeply compassionate way to be with. And a deeply compassionate way of being with, yes. And just, just, and I haven't thought of you. I've been, I've been the miserable card, haven't I, coming along here each night and talking to you. But, you know, actually one of the things I would stress about all of this, and perhaps I'm bringing it out a little bit more today, is it's joyful. There's a joyfulness to starting, engaging in this now process. Now you tell us. <laughs> Told you it was the punchline. <laughs> You've got to wait till the end of the joke. <laughs> But no, it's that joyfulness, isn't it? Arises a sense of, of, of seeing more possibilities, even within very entrenched relationships. Seeing there's far more life to it, and, and joy to it, and dynamism, and all these things that I've kind of given voice to today that we don't see when we're entrenched, literally entrenched in our view. Can, can I just say something to what, what Bridget said? Um, a friend of mine, a woman friend, who'd been in a very long marriage, and I don't think they hardly ever speak to each other. It's just got in such a deep rut, and I was talking about stuff like this, mm. and I could see that she suddenly, her her um, view of things change. You can see it in somebody's yeah. eyes when they I get it, you know, um, and and I said you need to he needs to have more space. You've just got to. You know, let him be as he is. I can't remember what I was saying, but she got it. And she came back the next day. She was so excited. She said, I never said a word, but we had some altercation. And she said, and I remembered what you said and what we were talking about. And and I, I thought about it and I didn't respond in my usual way. And he said, he said a bit later, he came and sat next to me, apologised and sat and told me how he felt, and it's the first time in his life he's ever done it. <laughs> so it was like, even without yeah. saying a word to him, mm. she opened up a space, mm. and he stepped straight into it. Mm. Right. He was so excited. Yeah. <laughs> but keeping relationship in that, that sort of, the, the dynamics of it going, is the real task. Mm. It really is. 
because otherwise there's these solidified roles and views that each have of the other. Which is Justin and then turning. Oh, okay. <laughs> Justin's hand kept going like this. <laughs> it's not that big, it's not that great. <laughs> um, we can consider ourselves kind of a, t- a tiny minority of people who are kind of entertaining this sort of stuff. And um, in Paul Brooks's book, Into the Silent Land, which you may well have read, I no, I haven't. he's a neuroscientist. And, um, oh, yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. And um, he just touches on very, very, in very tiny bit about the, the actual input, and he almost talks about it quite jokingly, the implications for kind of law and order in society mm. when the, the, the when you start playing around with the idea of the fact that there is no self. Mm. And I just wonder what you kind of thought about that with the kind of movement and evolution as meant whether people really will, we, we can sit here and hope that people really will grasp the freedom and joy that can come from this. Mm. But whether actually, as a society, that would it would manifest like that, given the implications, you know, if there isn't a very strong ethical underpinning. Well, as a quick as a quick response to that, and I hope you've gathered this even from what I've been saying over these you know, last few weeks, is that actually, with the doctrine of not self, comes a much larger ethical responsibility. You know, in fact, it makes it a lot more difficult. In Buddhist practice in general, ethics is much, much more difficult than it is within, say, the theistic religious traditions, because there's no underwriting by a supreme being. Yeah. No, nobody's underwriting the ethics. Whereas, you know, basically, you know, you know well, who's, who said you can't do that? God did. <laughs> you know, God said I couldn't do it, you know, so I don't do it. Um, I'm being a bit silly here, but... What I'm saying about that is that, in a sense, that the ethics is a lot more difficult, and much harder, and it's much more contextual. It needs much greater awareness. Now, I think you know, that is the kind of responsibility that you get when you really understand the teachings. Now, that's not going to be for the majority. So you need moral rules. You could say that kind of people's bondage keeps us all safe, really, in certain respects. Well, I don't know. Let's just think about it in our own terms. Despite the fact that we might know these teachers have been exposed to them for a while, done a retreat like this, or done a number of retreats like this, we're going to still find ourselves in pretty morally dubious places at times, and ethically dubious places. No. Of course. So what happened? Well, in, in Buddhist terms, we have a default position. And the default position is the five precepts. Yeah. Now, five precepts heard properly are tools, as I kind of explored, I think, just on one of the brief question and answer sessions. <clears throat> the five precepts I explored properly are tools for investigating ethical behaviour. However, they can just be a rule as well, that you don't harm other beings, you try to you know, um, refrain from false speech and so on and so forth. So they can be taken as a rule, I think, in extreme situations where they are morally difficult and you can't think it through, can't see what the clear view is on, on a particular position. I think possibly for the for a vast, vast number of people, that will always be 
the way that they behave in society is not because they don't want to do something, but because there is a rule that says you don't do it. Now, I think that if that's <clears throat> caring for us, who are deeply perhaps committed to engaging in this inquiry and in this path, but finding our areas of our behaviour which are suspect at times, and we still have to apply a rule and think, well, what's the precept here that I would be infringing? Then I think then it's obviously going to be the case for the majority of people who are not engaging, that they're going to have to rely on rules. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it necessitates a kind of breakdown of society or anything like that yeah. by talking about not-self seeing ourselves as processes and all the rest of it, but I, being realistic, and I think the Buddha was realistic, he just didn't think the majority of society would be engaging in that process. Yeah. Tony and then... Yeah. Um, <clears throat> actually, I'm going back to what Bridget said. Also, uh, it occurred to me, you know, you talk about solidifying of roles mm. because of solidifying of views, and it occurred to me, um, actually... What's really difficult is when relationships, I'm thinking an old friend, are really good, they become static because there's no reason mm. to change them in mm. a way. There's no reason to relook at them mm. a lot because they feel good. Mm. And that can lead to kind of a uh, putting each other into roles. Yeah. It's not just the... That's right, yeah. It can be through love. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to be through anything negative at all, but it's yeah. still about... Attaching and grasping and holding to a particular yes, image of somebody. That's right. Or them having a particular image of you. You know, that's really about possible even needs that are involved in that relation. I need you to be this person for me, and perhaps you're not going to be anything different. Or you need me to be this particular person. And that might actually come about, as I say, through quite care and love okay. in this way. But I think if you're really, really engaging in this kind of inquiry, then you're starting to, to, to loosen that up a bit. Starting to loosen it up. And see that there's possibly a lot more things involved in relationship than just images that we might hold of each other. Solidifying the roles. Right. right. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is just a thought. It's not <clears throat> saying it is the case, but it's just... What is involved in me deeply holding this image of you, whoever it might be, is it actually about my needs? Is it about my grasping, my craving in a certain way? And I think that's always worth looking at. You know, because actually real relationship, the way I would define it, lets the other be whatever they want to be. you release the other into themselves rather than make them be something for you. Right. That's why even, well, in, in, uh, in meditation, sometimes the aversion is just more obvious than the grasping. Mm. Yes, that's right. It is. <laughs> yes, of course it is. Yeah. The aversion pole is pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know when you're aversive. Mm. Yeah, and you know when there's grasping after that aversion, seeing somebody as a, in a particular image. It's not quite so clear as you say when it feels good. Right. Because then the perception there is there's no problem. Yeah, that's right. And there actually might be a very deep problem in that there is stagnation and stuff. I'm just saying, might. It doesn't always have to be. There might be that. And then there is no real, real relationship in the sense of 
communication because it's communication which is already understood, already known. You know, it's like people have been together for a long time. You know, you already know what the other person's going to say. <laughs> you know the way they're going to look, <laughs> and things like that. So it actually ends up often being about themselves rather than the other person. So actually what you're saying is if you really let a person be as they are, mm. if you can ex extricate yourself from your <laughs> grasping, yeah. um, that is actually the greatest kindness to them. It is, and, and actually ultimately to yourself. Because I would even say, I mean, obviously there's circumstances where you can envisage the case not being this way, but I mean, in a lot of cases you might hold to an image and they might hold to you and this might last for 50 years and then one day it's suddenly shifted and something's changed or something's been seen as being different. You know, so it's, I, I almost think what I'm saying is that something will change or something will shift anyway in perceptions, um, in most relationships, you know, no matter how long they are. And it's, it's about, you know, in a way, preempting that being with the changes which are already there. I, I mean, I, I suppose I'm being a little bit negative about this, but often it's as if, you know, particularly, you know, I don't know, close relationships, as if, you know, I take a snapshot at you age 20, 21, or something like that, and I've still got it in my mind at age 50-odd, um, until, actually, doesn't quite compare anymore. <laughs> You know, that something shifted, you know, that's, and I'm not just talking about physical appearance, obviously. I'm talking about everything else that's changed in somebody's life. And often, if, if the change becomes so great, then the other person almost can't stand it. Because they had no process of assimilation at all. There's been no assimilation gradually, gradually, gradually seeing that change. It's like, I see it all at once. Three years ago, my dad died, and my mum, my mum's in the eighties, and it was astonishing that when my dad died, they'd been together forty-seven years, and bearing in mind I'd knew, known my mum for forty years, she became a completely different person. Mm. I'd never ever seen this person before. Mm. It's quite astonishing, really, in exactly the way that you just described. Dropping a sort of role. And oh my God, who is this woman? Who's, who's here? And I'd never seen. The way in which the relationship that she'd obviously had with my dad mm. had completely created the person that she was, yeah. and her roles is astonishing. Yeah, it is. And I think it's one always. You know, we're all engaged in a relationship, whether it's kind of close, you know, kind of marital relationships or whatever. And it's always looking at that possibility creeping in for ourselves, and just end up playing a role. Uh, I had a, came across quite a number of years ago a lovely cartoon which I thought summed up certainly kind of the the more sort of um, heterosexual relationships, which was there was a man and a woman sitting at a dinner table, and he's kind of it's a, it's a dinner table. There's a bottle of wine and everything else and a candle and that, and he's leaning across the table and she's looking intently at him. And above every bu bubble, it's kind of loads of bubbles here, loads of squares, you know, of the cartoon. There's about ten in one go. Every, every bubble above his head is going, me, me. 
Me. <laughs> Me. And then finally, after about the 15th or something of these squares, he's obviously stopped saying what he wants to say, and he leans back like this. And she leans across the table, and above the bubble in her head goes, Me. <laughs> and he goes... <laughs> I thought I said so much about often... The, you know, it's actually about... I mean, I'm being slightly jaundiced here, but, but it says so much often about the lack of relationship. Yeah, because it's actually about me. <laughs> yeah, me first, me second, me third. <laughs> I think there's a, quite a Pablo Neruda said something about, you know, I, the longer I'm married to my wife, the less I know her. All right. Yeah. That was wonderful. <laughs> actually, somebody who lived quite close to me had a wonderful one about her husband, which is um, Agatha Christie. You know, she lived not far from here. And she was married to an archaeologist. And she said, one good thing about being married to an archaeologist is the older I get, the more interested he is. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.